curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Six after nine. All right, coming up later this hour, Phil Gifford in his book, Black Boots. Uh, lovely photographs from a bygone era of the, uh, the amateur game of the all, featuring All Blacks and some that aren't All Blacks. And the stories by Phil Gifford, he'll regale a few, which he's very good at doing. Uh, also, sceptical thoughts this hour, but we're going to um, have a chat right now with uh, Greg Fortain. Um who's the chair of something called the Plain English Awards. We've dipped into it as it's been going on on a couple of occasions about what they do and why they do it. Um, no harm in repeating that now for newbies to this idea of the Plain English Awards. Greg, what, what is it and why do you do it? Hi, good evening, Graham. Um, when I, we started, we've been going for 13 years now. I used to bang on that it was purely about my mother who, at 85, when she gets remarried, wants to understand the prenup as to who's got custody of the kids and who hasn't and all of those sorts of things. So everything needs to be in plain, simple English and we need clarity. Um, and I live in the great city of Pororua where you know, we don't want to deal with $20 words where things have been lawyerized and legalized, but we just want the one simple, plain one pager which explains things in plain English. Yeah. And so the competition and the awards have been going for 13 years. Uh, government departments have been really great agencies in um, entering. Many of them now have KRAs, which says that you have to be a finalist in the plain English awards, etc. And the public or the private sector have been a bit slower in the uptake and the awards are not that sexy so we need to find ways of sexerizing it so that we can get a bit more publicity which is why i'm always grateful to speak to people like yourself okay who uh picked up the gongs for speaking plain english in areas where plain english is really a help for everybody yep i think this year for me at the awards there were two standouts. Um, I'll do the positive one first, which was MSD won the champion award for their Better Letter project. And when you bear in Who's mind this NSD? Who's NSD? M M MS, the Ministry for Social Development. Thank you. MSD, yep. yep. So they had a, a Better Letters project that won the award and if you bear in mind that they send out about six million letters a year to about one and a half million kiwis that often their clientele are people who are stressed or struggling to cope or people with poor literacy etc limited understanding of english so they've been working over the past year on a better letters project have you got an um, example of some of their good work? I, I don't have an exact example, but what the, the judges were quite impressed that there was a lot of care just to help people's lives being made a bit easier and there was acknowledgement of day-to-day -day stress, etc. that it wasn't just sort of an impenetrable collection of just numbers and words so that where they were very at risk 
reversed and it was compliant. Yeah, but unfortunately, I don't have an example of what they've done. I just have comments from the judges. Okay, You do have the Brain Strain Award as well. And that's the yep, other yep. end of the spectrum, uh, which, um, for just sheer amusement's sake, is uh, a hell of a lot of fun as well. <laughs> Why not? Um, Greg, tell us. That, that, so I said there were two standouts on the night. The one was MSD, who absolutely deserved the award, according to the judging panel. And the other one... Now, both the People's Choice Awards for the champion or the best organisation, as well as the Brain Strain one, is sponsored by Sue Chetwin and Consumer New Zealand. So it's done very much through their, um, their magazine and they do advertising, etc. And the winner, and I'm not sure if you want to use the word the winner of, the Brain Strain Award with yep. the, um, the company's office. And um, what stood out for me was um, two years ago, and again this year, Air New Zealand was a finalist. Two years ago, Air New Zealand actually won this award. And they were the first brain strain people who just didn't bother to turn up. You know? And um, they obviously didn't take it seriously. Uh, whereas with the company, um, they turned up a young lady called Tracy and made an excellent speech about when she first saw some of their work, it was just lawyerized and legalized and academicized, and it was purely stuff that was based around compliance and that we take this totally on the chin and, of course, we will do better next year. So the company's office got quite a massive applause when Tracy Yerbury sort of gracefully accepted and then said, we will do better. We serve the people of New Zealand, and it's important that we turn around this year of shame for us, etc. So that was fantastic because they do play an important role and the document just wasn't up to standard yeah. Right. What was wrong with the document? Was this online? Yep, she um, was about... Let me see what was her one, Shane. I've been to the company's office. Yeah, it's just so much fun. Yeah, so the, the judges... Again, I'll just have a summary of the... Judges said that the form illustrated why structure and design are crucial parts of planning this communicational form does not force its readers to sift through large amounts of complex text. It's still hard to use due to the disorganised and visually unappealing way that the information was presented to its readers. Okay. The necessity of this expensive, it was very expensive to produce animated guides, speaks volumes about the poor design of this form. I hope the form is redesigned with the person who nominated said because this is an important function and society officers deserve better. And she asked how many people were there who were um, secretaries or dealt with the company's office. And there were actually over 200 people. There was about 20 hands that went up. So I 
and they do serve an important purpose and lots of people deal with him. Right. Uh, the person who nominated it also said uh, when you have to file your annual return to proclaim that you are king of some sort of company, um, if I get it wrong, my society may be struck off the incorporated society, society's register. One year, I missed a small tick box placed within a line of text and several yeah. months later, my organisation got a letter threatening to strike it off. It took a long time to work out what had been done wrong. Um, and things are no better this year, apparently. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that was one of the examples Tracy used. Again, I'm, I'm the chair of this organisation. I sort of don't do all the nitty-gritty and the details. I just push Play golf. My, my mother to understand this stuff and the wonderful <laughs> yeah. people of Porterua to understand <laughs> documents in it. And the other thing is that we are all just so busy now. Yeah? Mm. Um, last week, a woman came to me and said, I'm getting some money which was left for me in a will, but I just have to sign a form saying that I've got the money and what I need is... I've signed it and a friend has witnessed my signature, so can you just scan it in and send it off? And I said, did you know there's 10 pages there and you're actually signing an indemnity which says that if somebody else comes out of the woodwork and say that they should be a beneficiary, that you will have to give up some of their money. And the person was horrified. Mm. And they said, but I'm just too busy to read all of these documents and all of these pages. Oh, mate, th that's actually a strategy for some people. Yeah. They, they yeah, blind yeah. you with this sort of stuff, so you so sign something and then they've got you. Absolutely, absolutely. So so it's not just about it's complex and it's risk averse, mm. but there's also so verbose and so many documents that they do blind just ordinary people like me who just want the one page of that simple and yeah. plain image. Oh, well, let's see if the company's office improve and congratulations to the Ministry of Social Development for developing socially in an easily understandable way. Greg Fortain, thanks for all the coverage of the Plain English Awards. I think it's a good thing, doing us a, a service. So, Greg, good on you. Thanks. Thank you very much, Graham. And Hopefully next year we will talk about it more and you can help us push this. Oh, we'll see. And coming up next, Skeptical Thoughts. We go to the Skeptics Conference. Life, the universe and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Mark Honeychurch and Susie Wiles unavailable this week because they're flying around and being busy with the Skeptics Conference. But uh, chair entity, I think, uh, of is the designation. At least it used to be. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Of the Skeptics is with us, Craig Shearer, to tell us what happened at the Skeptics Conference. G'day, Craig. G'day, Graham. How are you going? Good. Now, good. it's very hard to herd skeptics, I know that. They're really <laughs> appalling joiners. Um, how was the conference and what happened? It was fantastic, actually. We had a really good conference. Um, we had, I think, around about 50 people uh, turn up for the conference. And uh, yeah, we had a really good time. And it was uh, very, very informative and uh, lots of really good uh, speakers. Um, so maybe maybe I can tell you about a few. Yeah, yeah, go on. You've got about eight minutes. Okay, all right. So um, I guess uh, one of one of the first speaker we had was a guy um, by the name of Ian Bryce who came over from Australia. He's um, had a huge amount of experience in the sceptical community over there. He uh, He's actually the uh, chief investigator from the Australian sceptics, and so he's 
uh, he's been tasked with investigating a whole bunch of scams over time. Um, so things like uh, free energy machines, um, so the, the, the sort of thing where people are claiming that uh, that they can get more energy out of a machine than they put into it. Yeah, which, it's still uh, popular, isn't it? We've got a couple of recidivists here in New Zealand as well. I'd like to mention uh, John Ison and his uh, book that was published by something that has university in its name, To Their Eternal Shame. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, but it's these are two of the most solid laws knowable in yeah. all of science, that's the first law of thermodynamics, which is you can't win. The second exactly. law of thermodynamics is you can't even break even, and it's unlikely these are going to be overturned. Indeed, indeed, and and so so yeah, Ian is um, sort of taking on people that are coming forward to claim their hundred thousand dollar prize. Mm. So they they've got a, a prize for anybody who can sort of show. Um, paranormal ability or, or anything that's sort of outside the realms of science. And, uh, yeah, so over the years, he's, uh, he's done a very good job of, um, of exposing some of these, uh, some of these claims. And, and the amazing thing is that, um, particularly with this, with this free energy machine, the guy who invented it, it was clearly a scam, but he had convinced about 15 different scientists that it was actually working. No. <laughs> yes. Are you using scientists there just because it's got the right amount of syllables? What do you mean, scientists? Really? Well, yeah, real scientists. So, so it was a scam. So, uh, so the way it worked was that there was um, that they were measuring the power going into this device and then measuring the power coming out of this device. Mm. And so they they put a, a meter on the um, the active or the phase, as we call it here in New Zealand, cable coming out of the power socket. Yeah. And they measured the current going through that, and then they measured the power being generated out the other side. And by doing that, they can measure um, how much uh, power is being used versus how much power is being generated. But the thing is, the way the scam worked was that um, they changed the wiring of the cable to the power point, and they, were actually draw they actually connected the earth wire to the phase as well. And so it was actually drawing current through the earth wire, which is where all the hidden current was going. Oh. Um, yeah, quite amazing, really. And so because nobody actually thought to measure the current going through the earth wire, that was missed. And so, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a complete scam. Far out. Um, in the past, you've had some brave, and I think it's a good thing that they did it, uh, people like Sensing Murder Folk actually turn up and um, take some Q&A that's yeah. the delicious side. Anything like that this year? No, we we kind of steered clear of that this year. Um, last year we actually had a had a guy um, who was presenting all sorts of conspiracy theories and and why he believed them and stuff. And um, it kind of kind of felt a little bit um, embarrassing, really, to sort of let him stand up there and espouse all the stuff. That it was kind of cringeworthy, really. So we decided to oh. kind of steer steer clear of that this year. Um, um, so you're in society from the prevention of cruelty to scammers? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, maybe these people are true believers. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then, then but, that's fine. They should be really comfy in their own skin. And um, it's you don't, you know, your sceptics don't want to be mean. In fact, I find uh, generally the folks in the sceptic society are generous to a fault. 
Yeah, yes, we are. We are. Um, so we. Um, so in addition to Ian, we had um, we had Nick Kim. I don't know whether you're aware of Nick Kim, but he no. was a, he's a um, he was involved with the meth testing scandal. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So this is kind of pretty a pretty big thing in New Zealand, really. That all these people have been um, evicted from their houses, and particularly housing New Zealand. Um, tenants have been evicted because their house, their the the places they're staying in, have been um, tested for meth and found and, positive for and found positive for, for this public really hysteria. Tiny, tiny, tiny amount yeah. of um, supposed contamination, and um, so uh, yeah, so we had a really good talk on, on that. Um, his opinion was that the the level that at which um, the detection was being made was way too low. Mm. Um, and Fair Go did a really good story on this as well. And um, I think the government at the time, the national government, they really... Uh, th- this is where scepticism is so important. It, it can really cost. They just went along with this moral panic because yeah. it felt right. Yeah, and, and we kind of got into the sort of discussions around the fact that maybe it was some sort of beneficiary bashing um, mm. That it sort of fitted into the narrative at the time. That um, yeah. Uh, so so an interesting thing from the Fair Go story was that they actually went and tested New Zealand banknotes as well. Ah. And it turned out it turned out that through testing New Zealand banknotes, all of them um, tested positive for meth. So, <laughs> so the banknotes you're carrying around in your pocket are just as contaminated as. Um, as many of the houses in New Zealand. Oh. Now, that, that does not mean that, that people have been smoking meth, um, but it just means that um, the, the, that at some point they've sort of come into contact yeah. with um, one of the byproducts of, of meth. Um, well, when, yeah, testing, so when testing gets to be really, really, really good, you can f- f- find you what find you're looking anywhere. for. Yes, as soon as you go looking for something, you're going to find it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> just by virtue of sharing the planet. Yeah, um, and 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 so people got the wrong end of the stick there as well. So the mm. so um, the apparently a, a pub um, a pub rang up and said that they were concerned about their pokey staff having to process the um, the money through the machines and how they might get contaminated with meth. Oh, like everybody else that <laughs> from, uses money from, from the money. <laughs> yes. uh, I, oh, coming up later on tonight is it actually aired yesterday, but it's so uh, worth another go. And I've got a gap and I'm putting it in there. Uh, a Marsden Fund researcher has been given eight hundred and something thousand dollars over three years. He's testing wastewater to find out who's doing what drugs. And he's also looking on uh, the dark web. Um, it, it, it could be quite fascinating because everybody pees. And <laughs> he's just wanting to find out. I don't think it's a moral crusade. He just wants to find out what's true, which is basically the point of the Marsden Fund. Hey, look, Craig, we've got to go. Thank you so much, Craig Shearer from the New Zealand Skeptics. All the best for next year's conference and good work that the Skeptics do. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live.
There's a new book out in the shops. It'll be easily seen because it's got a big, big black font at the front that says Black Boots. It's your coffee table sort of book, hardback, with many, many photographs from a particular era, with a few exceptions. This will get the nostalgia trons going, and we shall discuss with the compiler of this, not, not the photographer, Phil Gifford, a legend in sporting and radio circles anyway. G'day, Phil. Yeah, g'day, Graham. How are you, mate? Good. A lot of fun putting this together, I'm sure, but the reason being, it's Barry Durant's collection of photographs. Well, yeah, mostly Barry Durant. We also were very lucky, the family of the late Murray Hill, who was a great uh, photographer from the 1960s, in passing... If you ever saw the most iconic photographs of the Wahine on its side during oh, that God, terrible yeah. thing back in the 1960s, those are Murray Hill photographs. Wow. Know? But he also went on the 63-64 tour of Great Britain, took some wonderful photographs from there. So the great bulk, I would say 80% of the photos in the book are by Barry Durant, a very talented photographer from Wellington. And they basically span the era from about the mid-1950s to I think the most recent one is about 1983, Dave Loveridge. 96. Oh, 96, Justin Marshall. Marshall scoring for a try, that's right. To give people an idea, if you get this book, you are not getting a comprehensive photographic depiction of all blacks throughout this period of time. No. There are certain rich veins. Yeah. There's a lot from certain times and certain tours, uh, like 1973. There are so many from that amazing, legendary Barbarians match against yeah, the All Blacks. Exactly, the wonderful, the, what, what, a wonderful game of footy. Unfortunately, we didn't win it. What was fantastic about that Barbarians team, I think, on the, in '73 against the All Blacks, was that they still had the fantastic forward pack, the Lois of Mervyn Davis and John Taylor and these guys, but they also used their backs too. Yeah, and. I encourage anyone who hasn't seen it, have a look. It's probably searchable on Greatest Try of All Time. It'll be in there, won't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. In, in, of, of the bunch that uh, yeah. come up. Yeah. Um, the thing about these photographs, for me, maybe it's just how I look at things, but anyway, it's the secondary subjects that are yeah. just as fascinating. The people in the crowd, the people on the sideline, the ball boys, the, the, the cheering... Ulsterman. The thing that I like about it is, it was, to me, it's as much a societal thing at times, this book, as yeah. it is a rugby book, because what you're talking about is kids being allowed to sit on the sideline, which these days, at no major rugby ground in the world, if, is that even countenance? Kids aren't even allowed to go on the ground and get an autograph after a game, for God's sake. In those days, they were sitting right next to the touchline in, in front of the fence. There's you know? an egalitarian joy to that. Oh, absolutely. You know? and, and the other thing about it, too, that is that is... They all had real jobs, and that, and they were part of us. You know, yeah. they were part of us. They came out of the crowd, and and they came. They were the bloke that you went to the bank and saw. They were the guy that worked in the freezing works. They were guys that drove the bus. They were the school teachers. Could be a criticism. It's just nostalgia because these were formative times. These are just sepia-toned pictures of our minds, exaggerated beyond what they really were. Just because we get all soft about this sort of thing and pine for our youth. I'd actually like to give a counter to that, um, for one, a, a stat. And that is, in those days, mm. the all-black team or your provincial team, yeah. you could name the 15. Yeah. That would pretty much be it, except, you know, depending if Mel Heppel was teaching or having to set <laughs> exams at Wangarei Boys High that weekend. Okay, but yeah. you, there was such a small group of people yeah. that would make up a team. How many All Blacks went to Japan? 
How many were selected for this? 51. Right. Yeah, 51 All Black. You're 15. Um, you know, there were, there were chops and changes, but there wasn't a squad of 50. Mate, so are... you knew who the players were. Yeah. They became better ingrained on your mind simply because of that fact. Yeah, there are two There are two photographs in the book, photographs in the book that I think really, really hammer that thing home. One is, that, which I found such an, an affecting and lovely photograph, taken the night before the first test of the 1956 series against South Africa in the Dunedin Hotel, when the All Blacks, all dressed in collars and ties and some with little grey jerseys on underneath their blazers, posed for a team photograph, there are 15 guys in that photograph, the players, no coach, no manager, no reserves, yeah. just the players. Yeah. There's also a photograph of the 72-73 All Blacks on their way to the UK, a photograph taken in Vancouver, where... The two guys with bald heads are the manager, Ernie Todd, and the coach, Bob Duff. And that was the entire management team. That yeah. was it. Yeah. There was no physio. There was no PR guy. There was all of the, all of the extra people that are, that are involved. That are, and look, let me get this clear. I'm actually not one of the... I mean, I am an old guy, but I'm not one of these old guys that whines and bleats about professional rugby because I think it is a totally different world. It's a totally different game. Mm. It's infinitely more brut brutal on the bodies than it was in the 60s and 70s. And they play about twice or three times as much footy as they did in those days, or top-level footy, I yep. should say, you know, because All Blacks would play something like 10 or 15 club games during a year. Different times. Another photograph which reflects those times of how few people there were in that elite yeah. group. Yeah. John Graham on the sideline, injured. Yep. And I'm sorry, you're not allowed a sub. No, desperate to get back on again, eh? You know. Who would think of it today? Well, exactly. John Graham in that in that photograph from the 63-64 tour, he wants to get back on because there are no reserves stripped in the stand. He's wincing. He's wincing. He's in a lot of pain, but he's going to go back on again. There's a photograph of Ron Elvidge scoring a try. That's the earliest photograph in the book from 1950, scoring a try against the Lions when he was a captain. He had a shattered shoulder, never played rugby again after that game. He came back on and somehow managed to dive over and score a try. But I, I read an interview with Ron Elvidge some years later where he said that he regarded it as complete insanity and the fact that what it did was, by basically feeling obliged to go back on the field when he was extremely badly injured, he'd, he'd ripped rotator cuffs and all this sort of thing, and getting it re-damaged meant the end of his rugby career. And that's down to the, to the stupidity of the officials in those days. Will we ever see mud again? No. Interesting reminder that you do not these days outside of clubs. There's a 1977 photograph in the book of Alan Martin and Phil Orr from the Lions. I've just played New Zealand Juniors at Athletic Park. There was used to be a, a, a comic book in the 1970s called The Creature from the Swamp. <laughs> That's what they look like. It's easy to forget if you've only watched rugby in the last, say, 20 years, or particularly the last 10 years, where turf culture has improved so much and drainage has improved so much mm. that guys don't get covered head to toe. OK, some of these photographs are evocative of things outside the game as well. Ulster, British soldiers yeah. defending a run. Yeah, at Ballymena, just outside uh, um, Belfast. Mm. Yeah, because in 1972-73, when the All Blacks went there, it was pretty much at the height of, quote, the troubles, as they euphemistically called them, in Ireland. And, in fact, there was some weird stuff happened. Like, Bob Burgess got a, a letter from the IRA saying, we understand that New Zealand is not involved in the English occupancy of Ireland, and so, therefore, we just want to reassure you and your teammates that as far as the official branch of the IRA is concerned, nothing will happen, but... 
should you make this letter public, we will, of course, deny all knowledge of, of it, yeah. you know. But, yeah, the, the All Blacks played in Belfast. And at the time, they were so warmly welcomed by the uh, Munster supporters because what had happened was there were a lot of teams, including teams in the UK, that wouldn't go to Northern Ireland. Yeah. And so, so the All Blacks decided amongst themselves that, that they would continue with it. They trained with guys, armed soldiers, with rifles, that had live ammunition in them. Well, you wouldn't carry them without. No, that's exactly right, the, mate. The provost. Just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Here, I've got a gun, I'll, I'll throw <laughs> yeah. it at you. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Bob Burgess. Yeah. He looms large in this. Um, there are plenty of photographs of him. Yeah. His past is an interesting character. Yep. Really interesting character. Maybe one of a rare breed, almost a hippie. In, oh. in an all-black team, there's the moustache, the headband. He studied botany, hair to his shoulders. He looked like he was the bassist in an obscure 60s band. Absolutely. And takes the wife on tour as well. Linda Burgess, his wife, went on tour and she wrote a brilliant, brilliant story about it. I think it was either a newsroom or the spin-off. It's the best story uh, or best report I've ever read about what it was like to be a wife in rugby or a partner in rugby in those departed days. Because while on the field everything was wacko the diddly one if you're a woman and your husband was playing in the team, you were kind of, it was verboten for you to go. And she went on what actually was the forerunner in 1972 of supporters tours, which are now a large part of the game and, and a huge booming industry. But a guy called John Sinclair, who later on started the New Zealand Rugby Museum in Palmerston North, he put together a supporters tour and Linda went on it. And but she talked about how the rugby officials were extremely disgruntled at the idea, and God forbid mm. that any of the wives should <gasps> stay in the same hotels as the All Black husbands in case I presume their their manly manliness was drained before the game by sexual relations, you know. So it was just, it was such a bizarre, weird sort of time. But, yeah, there's a lovely photograph of Lyndon John Sinclair helping her into a bus in, I think, Edinburgh and a couple of uh, Scottish women looking kind of askance. Yeah. I presume they didn't think it was wrong for women to be on tour following the All Blacks. They just wondered why such a fuss was being made of her. Yeah, and Bob, quite a special guy, really, on that tour. Yeah. He was a standout. Absolutely. I mean, a fantastic rugby player and, and also... Doing a botany degree, wasn't he, on the bus? <laughs> yeah, I, I believe so, yeah. I mean, he, he's now a, a professor at uh, Victoria in uh, University of Wellington. Mm. And, and as it happens, I caught up with him at the start of this year for on, on, on another project I was working on. And just a lovely, lovely guy. I'd never yeah. had a chance to get to know him at all, but a top bloke. Now, another figure that looms large, mm. as mysterious as an extinct bird... You know who I'm talking about. I think we're talking about Keith, are we? Yeah. Keith Murdoch. Yeah. What a photogenic face, I think. Uh, A gentle giant, maybe. I don't know a lot about his character. I've looked into it a bit. But Mm. you tell us the famous story and why he went into legend and infamy in New Zealand. Well, basically, so 1972, the first test of of that All Black tour of the UK, they played against Wales and Keith Murdoch scored a terrific try. Uh, basically was just too strong for the Welsh tacklers and barrelled over and scored the only try that the All Blacks scored in the test and and they won it. That night at the Angel Hotel, which is straight across the road from Cardiff Arms Park, there was a dinner, formal dinner, and then there was, as happens, especially in those days, because they they felt that as far as rehydration goes, that beer and alcohol were the best ways to rehydrate after a big game. So everybody's drinking a fair bit. Then the story gets murky, but cut a long story short, Keith Murdoch was in an altercation uh, which, depending on which side of the story you are, 
Either he was provoked by a Welsh security guard called Peter Grant and punched him, or he unprovoked, just smacked Peter Grant because he didn't like the look of him or something, you know. And Ernie Todd, the manager of the team, and in, actually in some of the captions I mentioned this, that Ian Kirkpatrick, the captain, has said on numerous occasions, and he said it to me personally as well, that he wasn't aware of the fact, Ian Kirkpatrick, the captain, wasn't aware of the fact that Ernie Todd knew that he'd been diagnosed with cancer before the tour. And so really wasn't a terribly well man at all. I also spoke a few years ago, back in about 2006, I spoke with Bob Duff, who's now passed away as well, because uh, Ernie Todd died, I think, about 18 months after the tour. Um, and Bob Duff, the coach, said he didn't realise that Ernie was sick because Ernie hadn't, hadn't confided in him that, that he was unwell as too. So Ernie Todd made the decision under, it is believed, enormous pressure. Ron Polensky's written a very good, a whole book on the whole thing, which oh, I've yeah. read. Under enormous pressure from the home unions in the UK, sent Keith Murdoch home. And Keith Murdoch didn't come back to New Zealand. He stopped in Australia. And then the legend started growing from yes. there, didn't it? Because he just vanished. It felt as if he'd vanished from the face of the earth. And of had the gone earth. into the most remote places of the a- earth. Absolutely. The middle of Miningville, Australia. Absolutely. And and can I just tell you one which is which is not in the book, but which is one of the saddest stories I think I've ever heard about a rugby player or a person, for that matter, I suppose. Keith Murdoch, I'm given to understand. I never met the man, but I knew a couple of guys really well who knew him really well, in particular Lynn Colling, who was a very, very dear friend. At one point, Keith was working in the cane fields in Queensland, and I was working on a uh, TV, a rugby TV show with Neil Roberts, a communicator called Mud and Glory. And one of our producers was a wonderful woman called Margot McRae, and she went because we figured that if Murdoch was going to talk to anybody, it was possibly more likely to be a woman than a guy. So Margot went and she met him, and it did this very strange thing, Graham. He allowed the film crew to film him, but he wouldn't allow them to tape sound. It was very odd. So that became an item in the program. But Margot, when she came back, and I'm not talking out of school because I believe she's given interviews where she's talked about this, but I remember at the time when she came back, she was terribly upset because she's a very, very good, nice person, Margot. So they did the interview with him. Then they went away. And then the next day, the, the film crew guy said, mate, we haven't got a picture of him working. So let's go back and get shots of him working. And Margot was a bit reluctant, but she agreed to it. So she said, she puts her hand up. She didn't say, no, no, we must not do that. They went back. They parked their van. They got out with the cameras. They looked across. Keith was in a cane field with a great big machete in his hand, cutting cane. He saw them. He dropped the machete and he ran away from them into the cane field disappeared into the cane field. And Margot said it was one of the most melancholy, upsetting things she's just about ever seen, that this this mountain of a man, this incredibly powerful man, was so spooked by a film crew coming back, she doesn't know what he thought they were going to do, that he literally ran away from them. Very sad, very sad That's story. That's a crushing image. Though the media, perhaps as well, fed on this idea of that he was the South Island Kokako. You, you couldn't find him. Yeah, you yeah, might hear yeah. occasional things and yeah. reports, but that's about it. But he came back to New Zealand many times. He did. Uh, he, in fact, was involved in something that was quite remarkable in saving a drowning kid in Timaru well afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And, and apparently he was a bushman in, around Rotorua for. I gather, about a year or 18 months or something, you know. So, yeah, it is kind of extraordinary because cause it's not as if Keith Murdoch was unrecognisable. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not as if every single guy that you see has a drooping zap and a moustache, weighs 120 k's and has a 42-inch chest. Like, yeah. he had a massive chest and, and just a huge guy. So, yeah, I mean, one of the most 
unusual, weird stories in New Zealand rugby, and also I think one of the saddest. Yeah, to be these p- pictures are really evocative. We've got a little bit more time, so I just want to yeah. quickly rip through some of these. I didn't know about Pat Vincent, 1956. An interesting man, and the photograph you have is he and the yeah. Springbok captains. Nazi BBS. They're entering the field of play. A beautifully taken photograph, front on. Yeah. He looks a strange, pensive individual, doesn't he? Pat Vincent is the one rugby player that I deeply regret I never had the chance to meet the man because he died in the 1980s. Pat Vincent, you're dead right, he was the most unusual guy, A, to be an all-black, B, to be an all-black captain. First of all, he was extremely camp. I'm not saying he was gay, might have been, but he was extremely camp. He did things like at aftermatch functions, he would literally drink creme de menthe rather than beer. Dennis Young, the all-black hooker, told me a wonderful story because Pat never swore on the field. He was a captain and the halfback for Canterbury. And one day they were playing a game. The Canterbury forwards hadn't been protecting him and he was getting the crap beaten out of him. And he said, chaps, come here. And they thought, right, this is it, nudging each other. Vince is going to really blow a gasket here. He put his hands on his hips in that sort of teapot position and went, guys, this is appalling. (laughs) And that was all that he said. He also made four or five singles he was a jazz vocalist, and he recorded for the Peak label. And I, I swear, he has to be, without question, the only All Black captain that's ever released commercially released records. He, he was a, just a fascinating guy. Tragic end to him. He, he suffered all his life from asthma. The family moved from the west coast to Christchurch because of his asthma, because doctors said the weather was so bad on the coast he wouldn't live a very long life at all. He moved to San Francisco after he stopped playing rugby, and he was a founding figure in Californian rugby. And he'd taken a team to France to play over there, a Californian side. They flew back to New York, and he'd had an asthma attack coming across the Atlantic. In New York, a doctor had a look at him and said, you'll be all right. He got back on the plane. Before they got to San Francisco, the poor man had 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 an asthma attack and died on board an aeroplane in America in the 1980s. Terrible, terrible. And he was only in his 40s. Good God. Well, we've talked about some really interesting outsiders, Mm. haven't we? Bob Burgess, Keith Murdoch, Pat Vincent. Any particular favourites that I haven't alluded to that you want to mention? A couple of my favourite stories. I can't remember if it was Murray Mixer or Eric Watson told me about it, but there's a wonderful photograph. It's one of the more recent ones by the standards of this book. It's from the 1980s, 83 Lions to Murray Mixer trying to charge down a Lions kick. Murray, as you know, was just energizer bunny on the rugby field. And Eric Watson, the coach, once said to him, oh, Murray, should we get you a ball just for you so some of the other blokes can have a game as well? <laughs> my all-time favourite story in the book Funnily enough, it's in 83, so that's about Dave Lovridge, who's a lovely, lovely bloke. And J.J. Stewart, who's passed away now, but later on became the All Black coach. J.J. Stewart told me this story. J.J. was coaching Taranaki, and Dave was a young player for them. And in those days, amateur days, play club rugby on Saturday, down the club, have a few beers on a Saturday night. Dave apparently had, had quite a few beers before again, as they had in those days. Provincial teams trained on Sunday morning. Dave's looking a little bit dusty on the Sunday morning and he's got his five-year-old son with him and JJ, who had a very quirky sense of humour, said to the little boy, ''Ah, Daddy doesn't look too well today, son.'' And the wee boy says, ''No, Mr Stewart, this morning he leaned over and all his porridge fell out.'' (laughs) So, I've got to be honest, that's my favourite story from the book, really. All right. Just one last thing about Mm. received knowledge that something is the way that it is, which may not be true. Did that Barbarians game of 1973 that mm. were just lit up Rugby Union. Yeah. And still looked good. Yep. 
did that define what barbarian rugby was supposed to be? Because we always hear, oh, it's open running rugby. Was it like that before that or was that the moment that defined it? No, it was like that before it because as it happened, the last All Blacks barbarian game before that one in 63-64, it's the one where Wilson Winneray dummies and scores a try. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it was just a fabulous, fabulous game of football, that one. The All Blacks won that, I think, 36-3. Yeah. The Barbarians All Blacks game, 73 changed it, actually. And I'm not, I'm not altogether certain for the good because what they did was the Barbarians used to do a thing where they would pick about, say, 12 or 11 or 12 um, top-line international players and they'd put in three complete unknowns just to give these kids a chance to go and play the game. Well, now, when the Barbarians are involved, they pick basically the strongest team they can. It's basically a Lions team. And right. so that whole concept, because that game was so spectacular and because the Barbarians won so comprehensively, on the one hand, exactly as you say, Graham, an amazing and wonderful game of rugby. On the other side of the coin, it sort of changed, I think, the attitude yeah. of the people in Britain towards what a Barbarians team should do against the All Blacks. Okay, the modern game, I understand why they do the things they do, because they mm. want to win. Yep. No expense spared and yeah. no I not dotted. True. But is there anything you think that is good from that time is being missed and could be included today? Sure. Look, first of all, can I quickly say, I truly believe that I think the rugby now is much better than the rugby that I watched when I was a kid. It's, it's, it's a bit like Formula One. The cars are better, aren't they? Yeah, And they absolutely. go faster and faster every year. The skills in rugby are, just can't even be compared with the no. skills and fit. And why not? Because the guys now, that's all they do. Yeah, yeah. They train all day, so of course they're going to get better. I think the All Blacks at mindset is as good as any All Black team I've ever seen. And I first started watching them when I was 12 years old in 1959. So this is a golden era of yep. All Black rugby, and we should just relax and enjoy um, it. So, the results say so too. Yeah, but... The one thing I think the All Blacks were in danger of losing and that was reintroduced under Graham Henry and has been reinforced under Steve Hansen is that one of the things about All Black teams of the past was there was a humbleness about them. Now, one of the things that these All Blacks have done that began, I believe, from Todd Blackadder had a habit when he was the captain of the Crusaders of always sweeping out the changing shed before he left it. And then that spun on into the All Blacks and now that's one of the things. And yes, nowadays they start off imposing some of these things, some of these habits and some of these behaviours. But I think the current All Blacks, I think they are as decent and approachable a group. And yes, they're young men, so they're going to do stupid things. Like Steve Hansen says, in the way that Steve does, oh, you love your kids, but you don't love everything they do. But by and large, I think these guys are as approachable a group and their attitude towards the game and their attitude towards each other. And for want of a better phrase, this is going to sound a bit corny, but their decency with the All Blacks in the professional era, as much as any rugby team in the world, I think they've done a fantastic job mm. to do the, everything they can to stop them turning into a bunch of jerks. And I, I personally don't think they are. There's another exception uh, regarding the photographs. Provincial. Provincial. Yeah, the, the, you've got the, Wayne Smith. Just a comment. <laughs> he looks exactly the same then as he does now. Has he got a pact with the devil or something? Just doesn't it bug the crap out of you if you're like me? And if I compare photographs of myself now as when I was 23, forget <laughs> it, man. I mean, unrecognisable. But, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Wayne Smith, number one, he hadn't put on an ounce of weight. I don't know how he's done that. He's kept all his hair. He's gone a bit grey, but not particularly grey. I'll put my thruppence in then, we'll use nostalgic terms. I really do think that provincial rugby, mm. kids especially get a lovely feeling of belonging to a place. Yeah. I did when I was a kid, yeah. and I'm appalled how it's fallen in importance, national provincial rugby. The two competitions, you don't even know really who's 
in each because they all play each other. Yeah. They sound the same. One's the premiership, one's the championship, mm. and the quality's gone way down. I know Super Rugby's where it makes its money, and that's the world that we live in. Mm. But I'd like to see that true provincial feeling yeah. get a bit better. I agree entirely that the structure is not right. I wish that I was the Albert Einstein of rugby and I could write out a plan, give it to the New Zealand Rugby Union and say, this is what you guys ought to do, but I don't. And to be blunt, I've never met anybody that does have that plan. What's the most important thing to a New Zealander? I believe that it's the All Blacks. If you want... Oh, you've got the wrong bloke here, actually. You're not an All Black fan. I would rather see Northland win a premiership than an All Black victory in a championship competition. Well, I love seeing Thames Valley win, and they won the third division this year. Now, there's a special feeling. It doesn't even remotely compare to the All Blacks winning a Rugby World Cup for me, mate. I'm sorry, really? but it's... Oh, yeah, All Blacks first, because that's it. I well, one's rarity. One, one happens quite a bit, and the other happens never. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, Phil Gifford's been our guest, compiler, and also the stories behind this array of photographs, primarily by Barry Durant. It's called Black Boots. Great. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, mate. Set going... Really was something.